So most of you know this if you're over 12 years old. Uh, failure can be one of our best teachers, right? And I've got a lot of failure in my life. Um, I should be like Einstein. I'm not, but uh, I've always tried to learn from my failures. Um, one of the, the big ones that happened to me happened when I was up in Alaska. So I went to school at Oregon State. Uh, I went to Alaska for two summers before school to make money to pay for school. The first year I went there, I was a slimer. That's what I did. I dealt with fish slime pretty much 110 hours a week, just miserable. I had one other job, and that was to drive a forklift. And what would happen is this barge would come in with a tugboat, and they would dock. And it cost us $3,000 an hour to have that thing in our dock. So it meant you needed to get the fish out of these long warehouses onto that boat as quick as possible. So we would work three days, 20 hours every day, four hours off, 20 hours, four hours off, 20 hours. What happens during that time is you become really good at driving a forklift. You're going down these warehouse aisles that are just a little bit wider than your forklift, going in and get you drive backwards all the time, getting your can stuff coming out, just you do this 20 hours straight. So you get good at a forklift. All right, so that was my first year. Next year I went up, I was a carpenter. As a carpenter, I didn't really drive a forklift. And every year there's always a whole flood of new people. Uh, probably 75% of the people are new, 25% have been there the year before. So I, I'm a, a veteran now. So I'm up there second year. And for the first week, I didn't need to use a forklift. Then one foggy, miserable Alaskan morning, I needed to move this load of lumber down by the carpentry shop, which is at the very, very end of the boardwalk. Everything is built on wooden planks, the whole thing, up on piers, wooden planks. So we're at the very edge of it. So I go looking for a forklift. So I'm walking around this morning. I find a forklift way on the other side. I'm about to take it when I see another forklift driver. He's a new guy, had come just recently. So I said, hey, bro, is anybody using this forklift? He said, no, you can. And then he said, hey, but be careful. The docks are really slick this morning. Now, I thought for a moment that I should tell him, hey, listen, newbie, <laughs> I drew a forklift all last year. Don't tell me how to drive a forklift. But I didn't need to tell him that. I would show him how to drive a forklift. He would know the name Matt Heverly after that day. So I hopped on that forklift, and as fast as I could drive it, I just tore out of there. Rubber peeling, smoke coming out, and I flew all the way back to where the carpentry shop is. And it was quite a ways. And I remember driving, and I'm thinking, oh, it's not slick today. He'll learn. He'll figure out how to drive these things fast. But at that point, I had not had to hit the brakes yet. So I come up. I'm probably 30 feet from the carpentry door, and I go to hit the brakes, and the tires lock up, and I do not slow down until I smash into the carpentry door. I knock every tool off the shop wall there. My boss had been collecting, that cannery had been there about 100 years, collecting these old bottles, and he had this massive collection of 20 years on this wall. I knocked it all onto the ground in a giant glass pile. And I pushed the corner of that, because it's all built on wooden planks, I pushed it 18 inches off of where it was supposed to be. And I remember I was wedged into this door, kind of unable to move or do anything. And I thought, my, the dock is slick today. 
right? So then I had this massive job. I'm just trying to clean it up. And I pulled the door off. I'm trying to pull this corner back 18 inches. I'm working my tail off and lunch kind of has come. And there's like only five minutes left to get lunch. And I didn't really want to go into the lunchroom, but I was hungry. So I went running over to the lunchroom. I get my tray. I come in. It's packed out. Everybody stood up and gave me a standing ovation. The one and only standing ovation I have ever received. They knew the name Matt Heverly that day. I learned something that day. Listen to people. Sometimes the best thing you can do is to listen to somebody else. We have a lesson of failure today. And it's a massive lesson for these disciples. And they actually get it and they learn from it. And it's brilliant. And you and I can either learn it on our own or we can learn it from them. Let's check this story out. I call it the stubborn demon. Verse 14. And when they, Jesus and three disciples, Jesus has just been up on a mountain. He has been transfigured. Elijah and Moses has shown up like it's brilliant. God's voice has been speaking from heaven. It is brilliant. So this is the day. Jesus and these three other disciples, fresh from the Mount of Transfiguration. When they came to the disciples, this is the other nine. They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and death spirit, death spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, 
this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What a story. Let me try to retell this to you from the dad's point of view. You have this dad who has a son. He is stoked. He's excited. A son. But soon the son starts to get a little bit older and they start to notice problems with him. Seizures, convulsions, big times problems. So this dad does what any dad would do. He starts to try to help his son. Goes to the doctors. The doctors can't help him. Tries out medication. Medication can't help him. Puts him on a magnetic bed. The magnetic bed does not help him. Changes climate, moves from the north to the south. That does not help him. Rids his whole house of anything that might be a demonic doorway. Gets rid of that tribal mask and that skeleton poster and that, those Def Leppard uh, t-shirts, just anything, right? Purges his house. That doesn't help him. Tries the herbal route. Puts him on Gudugubu root and Echinacea golden sill. That doesn't help. Changes his diet. We'll go paleo. That doesn't help. Vegan. That doesn't help. Vegetarian. That doesn't help. Get rid of milk and eggs and cheese and sugar. That doesn't help. He's about to give up. When all of a sudden he starts to hear this news. There's this guy named Jesus and he has power. Not only does Jesus have power, but Mark 6, 13, the 12 disciples were given power and they went out through all of Israel healing the sick and casting out demons. And so now this dad, for the first time in years, maybe decades, has hope again. Maybe I can get help from him. Maybe Jesus or his 12 disciples can help me. So he loads up provisions on his donkey, gets his son, puts him on the donkey, has to tie his son to the donkey because he knows if he has a seizure on the donkey, it'll hurt him. And so they set off. But Jesus is on the move right now. He's just going from place to place to place. So this man has to try to chase down Jesus and he keeps hearing he's somewhere else. And then finally he hears, he's at that mountain up north. So the man wakes, makes his way up to this mountain up north. He sees a crowd of people kind of gathered down in the valley by the mountain. He goes, hey, do you guys know where Jesus is? And he said, yeah, 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 we don't. But some of his disciples, they're right over there. So this man approaches the disciples and begins to tell the disciples, hey, can you help me? And he watches the disciples as they look at his son who's got fresh burns on his face and scars all over his body. And the disciples are looking and kind of, ooh. And so he explains the whole thing to them. And right as he's explaining what was happening to his son, his son has a seizure in front of the disciples. And because of the seizure, crowds come over and the scribes come with them. The scribes. Oh, he'd seen the scribes before. He brought his son to the scribes, thinking they could help him. But all the scribes had said was, it's your fault, dad. You have some kind of hidden sin in your life. That's why God's punishing you. That's why this has happened to your son. It's your fault. Now he's worried. Are the scribes gonna say the same thing? Are they gonna cause the disciples not to help me? Oh, no. But other disciples say, hey, we can help. They remembered Mark chapter 6. They remember casting out demons. They remember the power that Jesus had given them. They're like, hey, we've seen this before. We can help. And so their dad is stoked. And so the, the disciples start their thing. They rebuke the demon. They lay hands on the kid. They quote scripture. But all that happens is he has another seizure right there, the worst one possible. And when the son is having this seizure, 
the scribes start to argue, telling the disciples, Jesus is a fake. You guys are fakes. You guys are heretics. And the disciples start to argue back and forth with these scribes, and the kid is just writhing on the ground. So the dad grabs his son, starts to sob and cry because once again, he's hopeless. He's hopeless. And as they're red-faced and arguing, this dad says, forget it, I'm going home. And he starts to load his donkey back up and starts to get ready to put his son back on the donkey when all of a sudden he hears, Jesus is here. Jesus is back. And he looks up and he sees four men approaching, Jesus and three disciples. And Jesus comes in and sees the disciples red-faced and the scribes red-faced and there's arguments going on and Jesus is like, what's going on here? What are you guys arguing about? And before they can even answer, this dad just speaks up. He's like, I could care less about their arguments. I can care less about their heretics and their denominational differences. I care less about that. I got a sick son. So he speaks up, verses 17 and 18. Here's the problem, Jesus. Forget all that. I don't care about that. My son is sick. That's all that matters right now. And when Jesus hears this, and sizes up the situation. He looks at the disciples and looks at the scribes and he says, verse 19, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And the scribes and the disciples are stunned. They're embarrassed. They're hurt by that rebuke. But they're also silent because they know it's true. What were we arguing about again? When this child was here, convulsing, burnt, we're arguing about what again? Stupid, stupid, stupid. And Jesus catches this dad's eye and looks at him. For the first time, this man has hope. It's been 15, 20 years, who knows how long. First time he has hope. But it looks like Jesus looking into his very soul and he says this to him, verse 23. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And that hits you like a knife because you realize the one thing your son needs right now, you don't have anymore. You don't have any faith anymore. Year after year after year of trying and praying and scriptures and scribes and Pharisees and talking to religious leaders and no help, your hope is gone. Your faith is gone. You just, it's been eroded. You've lost all hope. Anyone resonate with this story? Hard struggles, problems. Ah, anyone? Man, me, I love this story. Maybe it's because I'm really sensitive to belief, really sensitive to faith, because I lost mine. Most of you know this story that, man, I got on fire for Jesus, went to OSU, just on fire. I wore the t-shirts, had it all. And then I saw that you could take this class called Jesus Seminar, Philosophy 390. I'm like, praise God, I can learn about Jesus and get credit. This is awesome, this is heaven. Well, the class turned out to be hell. The professor dismantled my faith in Jesus and the Bible. I couldn't read the New Testament for two years. Because every time I did, I would hear his voice casting doubt on scripture. And so I did what I thought I was supposed to do. I turned to people. I'm like, help me. And this is what they told me. You just need more faith. 
You know how disheartening that is? Because I wasn't an atheist trying to dis, dis, uh, deconstruct somebody else's faith. I was a desperate believer trying to recover what was lost. And I'm like, how do you do that? How do you just manufacture faith? Like, how, how, is that, how, how does that work? Tell me. So they did. You need to read more of the Bible. You need to pray more. You need to go on a mission field. You need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to speak in tongues. Everyone had their formula. So I would just ask, eventually I just ask, how many chapters do I need to read? Tell me, because I'll read it. How long do I need to pray? Because I'll do it. Please, tell me. But you know what I found? There's no formula for faith. If you have one, please tell me it, because we'll convert the whole world then. It's much more complicated than that. It's much more difficult than that. That's what I found. And what I found was this, in a lot of church, doubt's a dirty word. It's like, oh, don't bring your doubt in here. We believe in here. Really? What I found was, doubt actually created in me antibodies of faith that have made me the man I am today. And if it hadn't been for that period, it was dark and it was hard, no doubt. And it was a struggle and I held on to a mustard seed of faith. That's all I had for a while. But I held on and I fought. And what, what that fight did in me was it produced in me a new kind of faith. A faith not based upon my parents or based upon my past. It was a faith that was rich and right, but it really took doubt to create it. The doubt can be very good if it's dealt with correctly. All right, so this guy, He's full of doubt, right? Now, look at this context again. It's amazing to me. Chapter eight was Jesus saying, the church is gonna camp at the gates of hell and it's gonna win because I'm the king. Remember that? That's brilliant. That was two weeks ago. Then last week, it was Mount of Transfiguration. God just bursting through humanity on the mountain. Wow, awesome. And they come off the mountain into this valley, it's a bummer, right? Sometimes I think, I think Christianity is presented to people like the Mount of Transfiguration. Like, remember that fictional town called Lake Woebegone? Remember that? This is what they said. This is their, whenever they introduced it, it was, all the women are strong. All the men are good looking. And all the children are above average. Sometimes I think Christianity is presented that way. Man, if you come into Christianity, man, you'll be strong, good looking, and your kids will be awesome. Like Wobegon. But you get into it a little bit. You get off the Mount of Transfiguration. And you realize Christianity is not like Lake Wobegon. It's more like Lake Selmak, <laughs> which is different. All the women are not good looking, or whatever it is. <laughs> Ooh, God. Matt at edgewaterchristianfellowship.org. I fish there, I know. It's much more nuanced. It's much more, ugh, there's good and there's bad. That's what this is teaching us. There's ups and downs. There's mountains and valleys. So what are we supposed to learn from this story? I think dad teaches us a really important lesson and the disciples teach us a really important lesson. First, the dad. I love his honesty, number one. He's the most honest guy in this passage, right? The disciples and the scribes, they're arguing with each other. When do you argue? When you believe you're right. If you know you're wrong, what do you say? Nah, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. 
Argument's over. The only time you argue is when you believe you're right. So the scribes and the disciples are just, we're right. They were sure of themselves. They bring the demon to the disciples like, we got it, man. We got our formula. This is done deal. They were full of themselves. We got this thing. Jesus looks at this man who has traveled, who has tried, who had years and years and years invested in his son and says, hey, if you believe this is possible, what does the man say? Help my unbelief. The only honest guy in the, in the passage. He's the only one. Help my unbelief. He admits his lack. He admits his weakness. And I'll tell you, here's the good news. Number two, Jesus is not looking for holiness. He's looking for helplessness. Is that good news? He's not looking for holiness. The way you and I all came to Jesus was not, hey, look how great I am, I'm varsity. The way we all came to Jesus was, I'm broken and busted up, help me. Honest, I'm busted, I need help. He's the first one who says, help my unbelief. Help me here. I had it, but I've lost it. Help me. And Jesus does not say this. Jesus isn't like, what? You're going to believe, you're going to bring your doubt here? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know up on the mountain I just met with Moses and Elijah that I am God in the flesh? Are you kidding me? Get out of my presence, doubter. Go and read some of the Bible. Go and pray. Go and worship it in spirit and truth. And when you got your holiness on, come back to me and then we can talk. Jesus doesn't say that because he's not looking for that. He's looking for people that know they're not. Are broken and contrite spirits. That's who Jesus is looking for. Help my unbelief. And then finally, weak faith in Jesus is stronger than the best faith in yourself. How contrary is that to our culture today? With all this Instagram cat poster theology, you can do it. They'll look inside of you, you got it. Really? I think that works till you're about 30 years old. You believe till you're about 30, you can control the world, that you got the world by the tail and you're gonna take it, right? And then all of a sudden you get married and have kids and you realize you're not in control of anything. That little 10 pound infant is in control of everything. Good luck. It just gets worse because they get bigger and onrier. So good luck with that. Oh, I'm in control of nothing. Weak faith in Jesus is better than complete entire faith in yourself. It'd be like this. Would you rather have all the horsepower of a Volkswagen bus, strong faith, or 1% of the horsepower of a Boeing 787 Dreamliner. Because one is like, a, is like a lawnmower, essentially. The other is still like a rocket. That's what it is. In Matthew's account of this, he says it's just a mustard seed. Weak faith in Jesus is better than all the stuff you got. All this mumbo jumbo, new agey, just nutty, contemplate your navel, look inside of you. It's garbage. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the King, because faith in him is what finally, weak, pathetic dad faith in Jesus is what finally heals his son. Move the hand of the King. 
What are you putting your faith in in 2022? I certainly hope it's not yourself. I know it's not our government. <laughs> Put it in Jesus. All right? That's what we learn from the dad. Here's what we learn from the disciples. Number one, they get rebuked. Anyone like being rebuked? Are you like, please rebuke me? Probably not. Okay? There is this thing today in our culture where we have equated unconditional love with absolute affirmation. That if you love someone, you affirm whatever they're doing. Does Jesus unconditionally love his disciples? He's gonna die for them. He's gonna pay the ultimate cost to demonstrate his unconditional love for his disciples and dying for them. Does he absolutely affirm them? No, verse 19. You faithless generation, how long do I need to be with you? How long do I have to bear with you? Right? That's brutal. We say today, if you love someone, just affirm them. Oh, you're so good. You're so strong. You're so brave. Oh, I'm so proud of you. Right? That that's unconditional love. No, it's not. That's selfish love. Much of what is called love in our culture today is really, I care a lot more about how you feel about me than me telling you what's best for you. That's what our love, that's what love is today. That's not love. Real love says, I know you're gonna hate me for this or you're gonna like me for this, but it does not matter. I'm going to tell you this because it's what's best for you. And if you don't like me for it, I'm okay with that because you're more important than me. Your opinion of me is not more important than what's best for you. And you read Hebrews chapter 12, and it makes it really clear Jesus is not some kind of Saturday Night Live life coach. Oh, just give it your best. No, it says the one that he loves, he disciplines. He'll take you to the woodshed. He'll do verse 19 to you because it's what they needed. They needed a rebuke. Jesus is gonna say, this isn't gonna be repeated again. This whole scenario with a kid there convulsing and you're arguing something over here, this isn't happening again. We're not doing this. This is it. We're done with this. They get rebuked. Number two, there's a revelation. I call this the stubborn demon, right? They try, it doesn't work. They had done something. They had power before in Mark chapter six, verse 13. They had done it, right? They're like, huh. So they come to Jesus and they're like, hey, what happened, man? We did the same things we did in Mark chapter six. What happened? And what does Jesus say? This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Demons are not identical. It appears that there's a power level, like from zero to 10. And this demon was 666 powerful, right? Like, look out. He's got power, big time. And why, this is very important. So the Bible kind of presents this to us. Daniel 10, 13, there was some, it was called the Prince of Persia, some kind of a power over Babylon that didn't allow Gabriel, the angel, to get through. He didn't call reinforcements. That's how powerful that being, that whatever it was, whatever you want to call that thing, Prince of Persia that was over Babylon, powerful. 
Ephesians 6.12 says that there's a ranking to them. Here's why this is so important. Here's why this, you need to know this. Um, the church loves to do this. And we all have brothers and we all have sisters or we all have family, moms, dads, sons, daughters, uncles, whatever it is, that are trapped in real stubborn problems. But then the church will do this. The church will bring up what I call the super saint testimony. A guy will get up on stage and he'll be like, all right, from the time I was 12, every day I drank a case of beer. I smoked anything that would burn. I slept around, I stole, I hurt. I was in prison in and out of it. But two years ago today, I gave my life to Jesus and I have not struggled since. I wake up every morning at three, I read my Bible and I pray for four hours straight. Jesus appears in my room. He tells me what to do. I fail not to obey him completely. And when he's done, he just like ascends up into the heavens. We're like, oh, wow. And then the rest of us are like, man, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my family? Why can't we experience that same freedom? Because there's different kinds. There's different powers. That's what the Bible's saying. You don't know what that person's going through. You don't know the level that they're dealing with, right? So what this story makes me really, really aware of is I have to have a ton of empathy for people and a ton of patience with people because I don't know what kind they got. I don't know how hard their struggle is. I don't understand it. And so what I should be doing is showing them a ton of compassion, a ton of empathy, and a ton of patience. Instead of saying, come on, what's wrong with you? Remember Super Saint guy? What's wrong with you? That's the worst thing you could do. Well, what else do we do? Well, it's the last thing. It's a reward. It's a lesson. It's what they finally learn, and it's a tough, hard lesson. Jesus says this, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, you might have a Bible, King James Version, that says prayer and fasting. Why does my Bible say prayer and other people's Bibles say prayer and fasting? Well, it's complicated, but we have about 5,000 manuscripts of the Bible, and they have a 99.99% homogenous on content. Like they're just, it's unbelievable. It's unparalleled in anything. But every once in a while, there are some differences. This is one of those places. Some manuscripts say prayer. Other manuscripts say prayer and fasting. So which one is it? I'm convinced personally that the ESV is right. It's prayer. Because more often than not, when there's a discrepancy between manuscripts, it's because somebody adds something. So it's believed by most scholars that fasting was added. And here's why it's added. And this is why theologically, I don't believe it's correct. When we look at prayer, guess what that means? It's complete dependence upon God. When we think about fasting, who fasts? Me. Right? So if I cast out a demon because I fasted, guess who gets the credit? Me. Well, I hate to tell you this, but <clears throat> before I came here to cast out this demon, I fasted for seven days. So <laughs> it probably is that's the reason why I cast it out. Right? That's what's being said. It's been added 
The entire theology of this story is driving at one point. Prayer. Prayer. That your faith, your belief is walked out, is seen best in prayer. That's what the whole point of this story is. So if you add fasting in there, then it's like reversing the story. And if you buck up and don't eat a meal, no way. It's prayer. That's what's getting it out here. So I'll try to explain it like this. Like there's this dance in this text between prayer and faith and power, right? Disciples fail. They fail it. And I think it's, it's like this. I'll give you an analogy and then a story. So if you cook food, probably every single one of us has their meal. It's a meal that you could blindfolded cook, right? Trout, almondy, and a light Dijon mustard sauce. I can just crank it out. But if you want to cook something new that you've never cooked before, what do you do? YouTube your favorite chef that you trust and then pay really close attention to that chef and his instruction and you just follow it trusting that the end result will be good. You're dependent on the other chef, not yourself. I think the disciples... Thought, we got this, man. We got it made. We did this in Mark chapter six. We're just gonna crank this out again. I could do this blindfolded. Are you kidding me? I can help this guy. But the one thing they missed was this. They didn't pray. Prayer is the YouTubing, I need help. I don't know how to do this. It's demonstrating dependence, right? That there is this, this dance in faith between being daring and being dependent. Daring, hey, demon-possessed guy, okay, we'll do it. But they weren't dependent. It's, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's daring, I can do all things through Christ, dependence, who strengthens me. And too often, we, we just start to lose that. We just forget, wait, wait, you're to be dependent on me in prayer. Yeah, daring, that with God, one will chase a thousand, and with God, Two will chase 10,000 with God. Dependence. And when we lose that, when we stop praying, it means our faith has been displaced from off of Jesus back onto ourselves. We're a Volkswagen bus. Good luck. Good luck, right? That they're supposed to learn a lesson. You depend on me, and they do. You look at Acts chapter six, the same group of disciples are being faced with another stubborn problem. And they say this, we're not going to leave prayer and the word for this problem. We did that once and it was a mistake. We're not gonna do it again. It's prayer. You guys, you're faithless because you're not praying. You're showing me you don't believe in me because you didn't pray to me. That's what you're showing me. All right, so let me give you a story. This happened like five years ago. And I happened to be studying Matthew's account of this same story. It's in Matthew 17. So I'm, I'm reading through the story and I get a call from a guy, a text actually from him. And he says, I have this gal, he's a counselor in Grants Pass. I have this gal and she needs help. I can't do it for her. Would you meet with her? I said, sure. So I had a Friday. So I met with this gal and she's this nice you know, beautiful older lady, and, and we're chatting and trying to figure out what's going on, and, and we met for like an hour and a half. So I'm giving her all I got, 
All my wisdom and all my experience and any theology I have, I'm giving it to her. Trying to work through some problems, blaming God, that kind of stuff. In the middle of our meeting, we're in a little room over there. And we're like, I don't have a desk. I don't do it across a desk. Uh, So we're just in chairs that are facing each other, maybe four feet apart. And right in the middle of this, she just grabs her fist and she punched herself in the face like eight or nine times in a row. Like that's a strange experience where you can actually hear like flesh and see like, oh, like swollenness and everything. So I said, why did you do that? She said, because I want you to know how much I hurt. So I said, well, next time just use words because I can get that. I can understand words. You can just tell me next time, right? So it's a, it's a meeting that's like just hour and a half, like, oh, I've given it all I got. And then she just decides, I'm done with this. She goes, just pray for me. And right when she said that, I remember the story. Like maybe I should have prayed in the beginning, right? Okay, I'm a disciple. All right. And I, I really felt like she needs to pray, not me. So I said, I'll pray for you right after you pray. She said, I'm not praying. I'm mad at God. I said, well, I'm not going to pray until you pray. She said, what? It's your job to pray. <laughs> I said, well, I'm not going to do it. So she said, fine, Lord, help me, amen. I said, yeah, that's not the prayer I'm looking for. That's not the prayer of faith that I'm looking for. I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray, and I don't want you to use the word just or the word Lord. And I say that because we can like fall into these formulas with prayer, and if you take out some words, it actually forces you to speak from your heart to God, the kind of prayer that God wants, a prayer of faith right? Instead of just this rote kind of prayer that we just get into. So he said, I'm not going to do it. I said, then I'm not praying either. So we just stared at each other four feet apart. And I bet we stared at each other for at least a minute, just. That's like 15 seconds. And it's as awkward as I can do. I can't do any more than that. And I'm just sitting there going, Lord, how long am I going to be here? And then all of a sudden, she started to pray. She prayed for eight minutes long. I'm crying. She's crying. It's, I'm right now, I'm getting goosebumps. It was a, I can't even explain the prayer that she prayed. It was one of the most powerful prayers I've ever heard in my life. And I just grabbed her hand and prayed. I just prayed like, Lord, that was amazing. That was it. Okay, I had to go for a week. I came back, and this is what I had two letters from her. I'll just read one little excerpt from it. She said this Saturday morning, I woke up, and I have never been so free in my life. And then she had this other letter, and it just said on it, Thank you, 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 thank you. And then the counselor sent me an email a couple of days after this, and this is what the counselor said. And I quote, Wow. God is good. Your willingness to pray for, fill in the blank, resulted in a powerful change. She is back on track now. Wow. Now, was it an hour and a half of my wisdom? Go ahead if you want. (laughs) Was it the hour and a half of my wisdom? I would have been better off if I had just said, hey, you're going to pray. It would have been an eight-minute, ten-minute meeting, and God would have done the same thing. Right? Oh, that we'd learn this lesson. 
Wives, when you have to have a tough conversation with your husband, it's a stubborn problem. Do you pray? Or do you go in with your wisdom? Parents, when you have that son, that daughter, it's a stubborn problem. And you will have them if you're newly married. Do you pray? Or do you go in with your wisdom? When you're going to work and you know it's going to be brutal, do you pray? When you got a neighbor who's just, he's that neighbor. Do you pray? Right? That's the whole lesson here. That faith, our faith in Jesus, is best seen not by how strong we are, how great we are, or how wise we are. It's best seen by how we pray. That's the lesson. Will we learn it for 2022? That's the question. Because these times, this is like the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Oh, awesome, great. And then we descend from here into the valley where there are stubborn problems and disease and broken families and drug addiction and lust and anger and problems and broken families and all that again. Okay. Will we pray? Because that's demonstrating that I'm dependent upon Jesus. How many more wrecks do I need personally before I listen to this? How many times do I need to destroy more stuff before I listen to this simple lesson? Matt, 2022, are you gonna pray? Edgewater Christian Fellowship, 2022, are we gonna pray? That's the lesson. And so when we come to the table today, as we partake in these elements, as we remember the unconditional love of our Heavenly Father to give us the unspeakable gift of His Son, is that going to motivate us more and more to be dependent upon His power? Where He increases and we decrease. So Jesus, today, as we partake, it's such a simple lesson, and yet it's so easily stolen from us. May prayer not be our last option. May prayer be our first option. May we not be wise in our own eyes. And may we demonstrate that we're not wise in our own eyes because we lean strongly into you. I pray for those that came in here with just a mustard seed of faith, clinging because of great problems. I pray like this, Dad, that we would be an honest people with you. I believe. Oh, wait. Help my unbelief. 
that we be falling on our knees, that the church is strongest when she's on her knees, that we would pray. So may we eat of you. May you increase and may we decrease in this moment by the power of your spirit, we pray. Let's eat together. hold this cup it's the elixir of heaven it's the antidote to the lie of the enemy that says God won't listen to us we're not holy enough and he's right I'm not holy enough. I'm not righteous enough. But I have been made righteous. And now I can come boldly before the throne of grace and obtain help in my time of need. Not because of me, but because of Jesus. May we drink of access to your throne room today. May the lie of the enemy be dispelled by the elixir of heaven, even in this moment. May the veil between heaven and earth grow thin for us, knowing that we have access to our heavenly Father, that he knows that we are but dust, but has compassion upon us. Oh. Let's drink of confidence. Drink together. Amen. So you know what we do? We finish with a song, responding in praise to how good Jesus is. And then you can be dismissed if you want to. But if you need prayer, I don't know if I need to say more about it. If you want prayer for anything, come up, be prayed for. And we offer baptisms every Sunday. Baptism does not save you. Jesus saves you. But baptism is your First step of obedience, saying, Jesus, you're not just my savior, you're my king. And if you say I should be baptized, I'm obeying you, remembering your death and burial and resurrection by reenacting it today. Knowing that all things have been, that were old have been put away and all things have become new. If you wanna be baptized, someone will be right over here by these doors. We'd love to be part of that chapter that Jesus is authoring in your life. Would you stand for one final song?